Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, September 29th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. Five. That's how many damaging insinuations Hillary Clinton made against Donald Trump that he didn't even try to refute at the first debate. 51, the number of times Trump interrupted Clinton, helping to feed this post-game narrative of the Republican as a sexist. 140 million, the money Trump is going to spend on a last-minute ad blitz. And 50 million, the relatively small number of people expected to tune into Tuesday's vice presidential debate. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we go again. Hello, Scott Bland. Hello, pod people. Hadass Gold. Hello. Charlie Matassian. Hi, Kristen. And welcome back to Eli Stokel, straight from the Trump trail. It is so good to be back. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it really is, actually. We have another great question from one of our listeners, and he is from Australia. Woohoo! Hello, Ryan, who is actually now living in Houston. Hi, Nerdcast. I really enjoy the show. Thank you. What's your question? Wednesday last week, Hillary Clinton gave a speech detailing her policies regarding Americans with disabilities. And there were no, cha- no none of the cable channels went live to the speech. It was covered pretty sparsely in other media. And there was very little discussion of the policy itself or its possible ramifications. My question is, how can voters be expected to make informed choices on the policies of the candidates when coverage of these policies, the policy problems, contradictions and benefits are swamped by coverage of polls, controversies by major news outlets, where people get their new information. Charlie? Ryan, I guess I'd answer it this way. I mean, when you boil it down, it's the question is, why does the media suck so much? And, and why can't we cover policy? <laughs> uh, and which I think is a very valid criticism. And uh, I guess I'd answer it this way. Um, as someone who has worked with disabled kids, as someone whose family has been touched by autism, I thought it was really terrific to see a candidate actually broach these issues uh, I mean, uh, and talk about the, the rights of people with disabilities. I mean, it was in many ways a historic occasion because I can't think of in my lifetime or at least in my professional career, a general election speech by a presidential candidate solely devoted to uh, talking about the rights of uh, folks with disabilities. Uh, so I wish there was more of that. Uh, but but speaking as a journalist uh, now and putting on my editor's hat, you know, I went back and, and read that speech and tried to understand why it got so little coverage, in, including uh, in Politico, as, as you mentioned. And when you read that speech uh, and when you look at it, the, the truth is there's not that much there. I know it was devoted to the, uh, you know, protecting the rights of people with disabilities, but there just wasn't a lot of flesh on those bones. There was no risk for her. There wasn't a ton of policy to cover. Uh, and so while it is notable, I think, the fact that Hillary Clinton actually gave that speech at all, if you take a look at that speech and read it in full, you'll see that half of the speech is really her stump speech, 
Uh, and then the other half is then touches, I think, on uh, disability issues and what she is proposing. But when you really drill down and take a look at the bullet points of what she's talking about, you know what? I think most people are in agreement. And I, when I say most people, I say most Republicans and Democrats are in agreement on what she is talking about. Now, the Trump campaign hasn't talked about it at all. And obviously, there's a huge contrast there when you when you think about the way Donald Trump uh, very um, – very visibly, very obviously, he's taking a lot of criticism for the way he mocked a reporter with disability. And so there's an enormous contrast there. But when you talk about the, the, the details that she was laying out in terms of we're going to work with colleges and universities to make them more accessible to students with disabilities, there's not a lot of dispute on that. Everyone is Everyone wants to do that. You know, uh, I think the other, you know, other, the other bullet point she was talking about, well, we're going to partner with businesses and stakeholders to ensure that those living with a disability can stay hired and get hired. Well, yeah, again, uh, a, a There's point no tension in this story. With not a lot of conflict. The one, the one area that I think was notable uh, where maybe you might say was uh, she took a hard position, and that is... Uh, saying, you know, calling for finally ratifying the, the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But even in that case, that is not a lightning rod issue. There are some conservatives who hold some, uh, I think, outlier positions on what exactly that um, that document would entail. Uh, and I don't think it is really the broadly held position of the Republican Party or many Republicans, but there are some conservatives to oppose that. So yeah, she put some skin in the game on that. But, you know, ultimately, I don't know that there was a, uh, you know, a, a cost to that. There was no political cost. There was no boldness to it. There were no promises of funding attached. And that's really what matters here. And so I think that explains why people didn't cover it, because they expected that kind of speech. And I think in many ways that validates the decisions of the, the cable networks not to go live on that, because what were they going to cover? And ultimately, who would have watched it? I mean, let's be honest. To me, this is sort of the question about, you know, like in my own life, I wished I watched PBS more. I get frustrated that my kids don't watch it. You know, I wish PBS had more money for their funding. But ultimately, I have to take responsibility because I'm watching things that aren't on PBS. And most people are the same way. And I think, you know, if you want to stay informed as a voter, there, is a myri there are a myriad of ways to do that. I think that, you know, uh, for all our flaws this cycle, there has been some tremendous coverage of the policy implications of what the candidates are saying or not saying. And I think if you put your mind to it as a voter, it's not that hard to find uh, lots of great coverage of what these things mean uh, in a way that go extend way beyond the horse race. I like to argue with you, but I can't argue with anything you said. I can't. Well, I mean, I just think that, I mean, what Charlie said is right, but I think, you know, we're missing the fact that she probably gave that speech, at least half the reason she gave that speech was because of Trump mocking Serge Kovaleski of the New York Times and standing on stage and mocking a reporter with a disability. That is one of the things that the Clinton campaign has found out tests about as poorly with voters as any of the crazy offensive things that Donald Trump has said. But Charlie makes a good point about the coverage. Had Clinton made her speech more into an attack on Trump, it would have gotten more coverage. I think the campaign made a calculated decision not to do that, either because they were happy with the way the news cycle was going at the time, the way Trump was dominating, or because they just felt like that sort of uh, would undercut the seriousness of the speech. But sadly, in this media environment, I mean, that's the sort of thing that would have gotten more attention, more media eyeballs, has, had she turned it into a more high-volume attack on Trump and that moment. Thank you, Ryan, for your question, and thanks for listening. 
Thank you. Let's get to our first data point. It is the number five. That's how many damaging insinuations Hillary Clinton made against Donald Trump that he didn't even bother to refute when they were on stage at their first debate. Eli, walk us through these. Yeah, there were a lot of things. I mean, there were two things that stood out to me from the debate. The sort of nonsensical word salad answer that he gave to the question about cybersecurity by itself is just like an amazing microcosm like of, uh, yeah, of the Trump uh, stream of consciousness. But setting that aside, there was this series of attacks that Hillary Clinton made against him that, you know, normally you would see a candidate try to sort of weave away from. And Donald Trump stood there and just sort of explained, rather he didn't even dispute these things. He just sort of had a quick answer or explanation for them. Give me one. Uh, The housing market. She said he rooted against the housing market for people to lose their homes. And he chimes in, that's called smart business. Uh, When she laid out four possible reasons why um, he may not pay any income tax or why he... Why he's not releasing his tax Why he's not releasing them. Yeah. She said he might not pay any. Uh, That might be one of the reasons. She had some other ideas. He responded and he didn't dispute any of it. Listen to this. Or maybe he doesn't want the American people, all of you watching tonight, to know that he's paid nothing in federal taxes because the only years that anybody's ever seen were a couple of years when he had to turn them over to state authorities when he was trying to get a casino license and they showed he didn't pay any federal income tax. So that makes if me he's smart. Paid- that is really one that I think is already being Uh, spliced and diced into Democratic attack ads, and we'll see on the air very soon. That could be incredibly damaging, uh, if anything can Mm be more damaging to Trump at this point. Um, There was another one, you know, when she attacked him for stiffing contractors and not paying contracts at the the Trump Corporation. And what did he say? He didn't say, no, that's wrong. He said, maybe I wasn't happy with their work. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, at the end, when she's sneaking in the Miss Universe thing, what does he say? He says, where did you get that? As if he was shocked to, to be attacked for that and surprised that she was pulling that out of her hat. But he never disputed it. And indeed, since then, you know, continued to sort of say, well, she gained a lot of weight. I mean, like he just, you know, there's just no self-reflection about the worldview or the, the sexism there. And then the birtherism answer was really fascinating, too. Obviously, he can't deny that he pushed this uh, notion and questioned the president's the first black president's U.S. citizenship up until two weeks ago, um, even after, you know, the president put out the long form birth certificate in 2011. And when Lester Holt really pressed him on that and said, he put this out in 2011. What took you so long? What do you say to Americans? Trump's response was, quote, well, I say nothing because I was able to get him to produce it. He should have produced it a long time before. I say nothing. Right. And just a total inability to apologize or recognize anything that he has ever said or done as a mistake. It's and an I unwillingness. I don't know it, if it's an inability. It's a stubbornness, but it is. It is. It leads to, I think, a blindness um, to not just you know your your sort of own personal character flaws, which we can debate at another time, or he can deal with with his shrink. But when you're running for president. There is a blindness in that moment on the stage and sort of an obtuseness that prevents the advice of his advisors and inner circle from really breaking through because he can't recognize at any point that these are politically 
damaging to him, that these are potent attacks. And so when you sit there on a debate stage in front of 100 million television viewers and you basically don't deny the allegation, the possibility that you've paid no federal income taxes, you just you know, throw gas on the fire of that question and that controversy and you give the Democrats material to put into these ads. I don't think, you know, everybody has accepted a lot of the flaws of Donald Trump, right? It's sort of baked into the cake. That's a big reason why when he does crazy things, it doesn't, you don't see fluctuations in the polls. He doesn't drop very much. Uh, People accept it. But I think that the tax question is a lingering thing that he has not answered. And, you know, when you see that in ads and you see him sitting there saying, well, that's because I'm smart. You know, she's the one turning it around, just like he turned around the, the deplorables thing and said she's talking about cops and firemen and whatever. She's doing that now. And she's saying you're talking about hardworking cops and firemen and carpenters who are not paying taxes. You think they're dumb? I mean, this is just, a, yeah. you know, this is something that is an obvious error on his part. And he didn't see it then, and I don't think he sees it now because what's he doing this week? You know, his advisors try to reach him through the media and accept the fact and, and try to say, like, yeah, I should prep more or whatever. He's sitting there telling advisors, like, nope, you should be out there saying that I won. Charlie, jump in. I'm sort of over with or I'm done with damage assessment of Trump's remarks. You know, I mean, the, the guy has he's broken every taboo in politics. He's grabbed every third rail. He's violated every norm. And Nothing seems to affect him. I mean, we could just sit here and write out a list of 50 bullet points of things that should have killed him that would have killed other people. So to me, the remarks he made, I, I, they might not be damaging at all to him. Uh, I think for right now, who, does, who did he lose of his, of his base? Probably no one. You know, I felt like I heard a lot I mean, of that from him. He's not going to win with just his base. I mean, Wait, but, I, like, yeah, his but base I mean, is solid. We've known that for months. Yeah, but he didn't lose anyone from there. But the question then is, can he grow it beyond there? And that's where I think he's going to struggle if he continues down this line. I don't think it hurts him, but I do think it prevents him from growing. And then, but that but hurts to, him. If it prevents him from growing... But we we don't have, we I don't mean, know that yet, you know. Uh, and so the the what it, what I do think is really revealing here is that it says something about his fatal flaw. And you know we we all know from dealing with politicians all the time that you know th- they tend to be a, a an arrogant and egotistical lot. Um, but I think what you see here is you rarely see it have such an enormous effect on the strategic and tactical decisions of candidates. You're usually smart enough or clever enough to work around it or get around it, and he doesn't. And and this was very clear from the debate because he refused to prepare, refused to make any sort of concessions to the kinds of things you need to do to get that last couple percent to break through the ceiling he appears to have. And he continues to talk that way, and that's a huge problem for him. Well, I think that there, Eli's right in that there is going to be a group of people that he needs to win over in order to win, and that includes the white suburban educated women. And there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence since the debate, a lot of stories done with focus groups where he didn't do that well with them from that debate because of the things like the federal income tax question, because of the attacks on Miss Universe, where they, they, there was a quote, I forget if it was the Times or the Post, where they um, watched the debate with us, uh, Pennsylvanian white women, and one of them said, you know, I liked him, but at the same time, I like him, but at the same time, I would never allow my son to talk that way. So do I want this person in office and somebody that my son will have to look up to? And that that's going to affect it. So there were two bits of information coming out of this debate that made me question whether this time it's different. One is that there was a very interesting focus group in North Carolina that was that consisted of all people who were leaning toward Trump. And as soon as he said 
that's because I'm smart on the tax on the tax question. There was audible gasps in the room with even white male Republicans saying, "What I pay my taxes? Does that mean I'm not smart?" The second piece is, you know, there haven't been a lot of good numbers after that debate yet, but there was a CNN poll that found 67% of voters said that Hillary Clinton's critiques of Trump during that debate were fair. That's an interesting data point for me. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, I think that's right. And I think he plays into that because if he's not disputing them and arguing them, right, like he disputed that he was um, against the Iraq war at the beginning. And that that was one case where he said, no, that's not true. But for the most part, if you're sitting there shrugging your sh- shoulders and saying, well, you don't, you just don't get me, I'm smart, or I didn't like their work, or whatever it is, that's an admission, right? That just makes it seem like the line of questioning is fair. I think Hadass is right about the, the impact and, and the suburban women. I mean, they are, right? Politics hasn't changed that much. The same voters, the same suburban soccer moms, they're going to decide this election. They're the reason Trump can't really break out of the low to mid 40s. And I think that, you know, the Alina Machado thing at the end that Hillary, I mean, we talked about the tax thing, and I think that's damaging. And it depends on how much, you know, coverage this girl, this former Miss Universe who apparently she's a woman. gained weight. Right. She is. She's a woman. Right. And and the 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 very crude and naked and unapologetic sort of grotesque misogyny and sexism, the objectification of this woman and saying, well, she got fat. And you know what? Even when Trump went on Fox and Friends Wednesday morning after after the debate and they asked him about this, the look on on uh, Steve Ducey's face, I mean, these are like the biggest cheerleaders in the world for Trump. And when Trump went on and said, well, she gained a lot of weight, we had a big problem, they were visibly cringing as they stared into the camera and sort of I mean, that was uncomfortable. And so I think there's an understanding in pretty much everyone but Trump that you do not say that. And Charlie, I think you're right that, yeah, it's, it's, it's like we're, we're past this point of sort of like trying to uh, find the gap the that damage. kills him. Nothing's going to kill him. But we're talking about the margins, the swing voters on the margins right now. And I would say that after Judge Curiel, he went down. Okay, the that one had by an one impact that... after the Khan family and the attacks when he couldn't apologize. He couldn't just walk away. He had to go after them and insult them. He dropped down. And I don't know that the Alina Machado Miss Universe thing, um, it has the same impact at this point, but it is exactly the same in terms of the kind of story it is where somebody who has some, something, a negative story about Trump and some sort of moral authority or some believability because of where they come from and what their story is, and he doesn't recognize it, and he doesn't recognize any version of truth or reality other than his own, and that is what hurts him and compounds these situations because he can't stop talking about it. He just keeps going. He keeps it in the news, and you know we're at a pretty important stage now where, where people are starting to vote, and so I think it's... Uh, Yes, it will take more polling to assess the damage of this, but like we've seen this pattern before and we've seen these sorts of situations take a toll on his I numbers. I think what's perhaps even more damaging for him is that he did not take advantage of situations where he could have turned around the attack on Hillary Clinton. Right. When, I, when we watched him do the Iraq war vote, whatever he, whatever he said, he could have so, I remember thinking this watching it, he could have so easily said, you know what, I, that was, I, I said it offhand, but I was a private citizen. You were a senator and you voted for it. You actually... Like caused this to happen. You had information, exactly. and you still voted for exactly. it. Exactly, and in, and he didn't. He just he just kept fighting about whether or not 
he actually said or not, that could have been a very damaging moment. Well, and the cybersecurity question where he gets asked about cybersecurity mentions how his son is great at computers, but doesn't mention Hillary Clinton's emails and the possibility that, you know, classified information was compromised. I mean, that is the sort of thing that, you know, after the fact when everybody's saying like, well, maybe you need to actually prepare. I mean, those are the points that they're talking about because as good as he is sort of instinctually recognizing where he is on the stage, he's never been in a situation like that and he did not read and react very well. I think ultimately it just comes down to the, the question of discipline. And when, when you boil it all down, this is a race that Donald Trump can win. We know that now from looking at the polling uh, and when you look at the electoral map right now. The question is, will he be disciplined enough to uh, do the kinds of things necessary to win? Uh, from all indications, he can't. And that is, to me, the big takeaway from that debate for all the questions, for all the reasons that Hadass uh, just articulated. I mean, I thought that was a really smart point that you were making, which is that these were lost opportunities. You know, why is he talking about Baron Trump's uh, facility with computers? Like, is, is that like a play for the 10-year-old vote? I mean, wh why is he talking about these things? Why not turn it on Hillary? Why not put the focus on her? Because he doesn't have the discipline to do that. He doesn't have the discipline to leave, to leave uh, uh, the Machado situation alone. He doesn't have the discipline to uh, parry these attacks and turn it to something else. And I think that could, you know, we're, we're going to see it. No, hold on. We're going to see this come back and back and back over the next 10, 14 days as the debate inside Trump Tower about bringing the Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton infidelity story um, to the next debate. Do they use it? Do they not? If they do, how do they do it? And it seems what we're hearing is Democrats saying, please do it because we would love to have this debate. Does he show the discipline to not or do they have a strategy to make it something about her and not about him? You know, what they can't do what they can't do is lay on the feet of this woman blame for the bad behavior of her husband, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that they came out and, and the way they said, oh, our candidate was so restrained. I was, I mean, th that was a farce, right? It was, it, he was restrained and gentlemanly because courageous. he didn't, he was courageous. Eric Trump said, I was so proud of my father because he didn't bring up Monica Lewinsky. And, and what are they doing over the last, like, you know, 48 hours since the debate saying, I didn't bring up Monica Lewinsky. I'm so smart. P.S. Monica Lewinsky. I mean, they're like shouting Monica mm -hmm. Lewinsky's name practically and saying, like, don't we deserve it? By the way, he did bring it up. It he up. did bring it up during the exactly. debate. He just didn't say the name. Right. So the idea that they want credit for not bringing up something that they're bringing up is a complete farce. And also, I mean, I think that, like, they're going to tiptoe around it like this. I think they have to know. And I mean, if Donald Trump doesn't know this, and, and, he, and he may not, then like, you know, good night. But Kellyanne and these people have to know that if you go there in the debate, I mean, curtains, you, you, that's like a third rail that just when there's this sort of audience and you need to persuade soft Republican women, you don't go and play the adultery card when you're a thrice married billionaire who's had a career about of objectifying women and talking about their bodies on Howard Stern. You just don't do it. Hadass. I, I but I I if I had to put money on whether that comes up in the next debate, I feel like it will. I feel <laughs> right. like I feel like Donald Trump will see it as such a smart, great play, uh, especially if he feels like he's starting to go under again and get attacked. I could see him pulling that out easily and it's going to make for an incredibly uncomfortable moment on stage and how Hillary Clinton reacts to that is what I'm going to be most interested in because I'm sure she has practiced many 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 responses to this is she going to bring up his own history is she going you know how do you respond to that 
she's never more sympathetic, I think, than when she's been just battered over this and over other things. I mean, even the Benghazi hearing. I mean, he didn't bring up Benghazi, even though I think he brought some of the people who were there and sat them in the front row. (laughs) Right. So, I mean, that's another thing that he sort of, another missed opportunity. But, um, you know, the way he, I mean, he just can't really figure out the, the right way to hit her. And I think we saw when she was on Capitol Hill for those 11 hours, when she was getting all those questions, she kind of owned them, right? And they looked crazed for sort of attacking her and foaming at the mouth. And I think, you know, the risk here, and I think, I mean, she's trying to sort of portray him as sexist, you know, bombast. And by coming in and railing about Monica Lewinsky, just playing right into another one of her traps. And I think that, you know, research has shown over and over and over again with Hillary Clinton that through the years, as unpopular as she may be, um, what popularizes her, what makes people empathize with her at least, is when she's in the hot seat getting attacked and especially on this topic. You know, Charlie suggested a data point, and it was the number 51. And that's how many times Trump interrupted Clinton during the debate. Now, I know that this is getting a lot of... um, play among liberal women. So it's a little preaching to the choir about, you know, mansplaining and all that and all that stuff. Does it matter beyond the Acela corridor, Charlie? I think it does um, in, in one important way. Like, I do think that there's an element of that is who he is. And I think when you think about it when you, uh, objectively, like he would have done that to anyone. He would have been rude and boorish to anyone. Like that's his style. It's bluster. So I think that takes a little bit of the sting out of that charge. But where I do think it's really important, uh, the, the number of times he interrupted Hillary Clinton, is that this is his Achilles heel, uh, how he plays with women. And it's clear they know that in the campaign. I mean, he's running behind where uh, Mitt Romney was with white women. And it was clear to me that they know it in the campaign because, number one, he finally, it's not just the gang that that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, there are real legitimate political professionals in that operation, whether it's, you know, Kellyanne or uh, Jason Miller, people like that. I mean, it's just not, it's not the usual uh, parade of, of, uh, personalities that it started with. So they know something about politics. And you could tell from the way he comported himself in the beginning of the debate. He walked very gingerly toward her. He was clearly conscious of getting in her space. Uh, he spoke softly in the beginning. And that was all to me. I read that as they he had been warned about what happened with Clinton and Lazio. He was cognizant of where it could go terribly wrong and where he could really alienate a lot of women. And then it all went off the tracks when he lost the discipline. And so to me, the really important thing is uh, whether he can get away or learn from the mistake of interrupting her so many times and be cognizant of the, the, the need for him to present a temperament and a style that is not going to alienate lots of women, particularly women in the suburbs. Let's get to our next data point. It's 140 million. That's how much Trump's campaign is saying it's going to pay for a final media blitz, that thing we've all been waiting for. Scott, how much of that at this point really needs to come out of his own pocket? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it's one that uh, Alex Eisenstadt and Ken Vogel wrote about recently. So uh, as of his last FEC report, Trump's campaign had $50 million on hand, which is obviously less than $140 million. Uh, now, we've, you know, we've also talked about it at length, how he's turned on the small donor machine and, and he has quite a few large donations flowing in uh, at this point as well. Um, but, you know, $140 million is, is a lot of money and there is not much time left to raise it. 
as, as well as to spend it. Um, so, you know, it's possible a significant chunk, maybe his biggest single contribution uh, of this campaign, self-contribution, could have to go into this. Um, but we are starting to see this, you know, the, the other aspect of this is, is it really going to add up to 140 million, this, this spending, right? Like we've been told in the past that there was going to be uh, X, Y, or Z amount of advertising and it hasn't always happened. So, you know, we have started to see um, examples of, of TV ads going on the air in, in various places, you know. Middle of October, for example, we were just talking to some buyers the other day, 17.7 million booked across a number of states. But what's what's really interesting is some of these states where uh, Trump is starting to to pour the money into this big ad blitz, right? You've got your typical ones that, that we've been talking about a lot, your Florida's, North Carolina's, uh, New Hampshire, Nevada, so on and so forth. And then Colorado, mm-hmm. the forgotten swing state of 2016, he's, he's dumping a few million dollars starting, you know, starting uh, middle of this month into Colorado. And he's that is expected to continue. Yeah. And this is a state where Hillary Clinton pulled back her advertising. I believe her super PAC pulled back its advertising over the summer as uh, polling got really bad for Trump there. And now, uh, you know, it's one of these places where, uh, the Trump campaign is making its push at the at the last gasp. It'll be very interesting to see if the Clinton campaign ends up going back there to match them, or if they feel so confident in in their numbers there that they won't bother. Well, and one note on Colorado. I mean, and and Mark Barabek had a great L.A. Times piece on Colorado this week, and the reason why Trump is such a terrible fit there because of the rising Hispanic population, because of the inflow of all these educated millennial types and young people who are moving there. I mean, it's just not a good place. For Trump, the reason it's close is Gary Johnson. Gary Johnson has been eating millennials in Colorado. He's, uh, you know, pro eating millennials, not eating pot brownies. But like, <laughs> that's also a possibility. And in Colorado, his support for marijuana legalization is a big part of his appeal there. I mean, this week when he had another quote Aleppo moment and couldn't name a single foreign leader that he respects in the interview with Chris Matthews on Wednesday night. I mean, Aleppo. it seems like he might be eating pot brownies. And I don't know how serious. Uh, you know, in the end, when he's not on stage for three debates, how much of an impact he will have. But the Clinton campaign is really trying to sort of calibrate uh, at what point they're at risk in Colorado, at what point she needs to make a few more stops there. And if they do need to put money uh, back into TV, Trump is trying to sort of force them into a more defensive posture and to divert resources that the Clinton camp would put other places into Colorado. And that may work, but we just sort of have to see. I think they're very interested. I've talked to a a person after the debate who's in charge of the Clinton campaign out there, and they said they're really waiting to see some solid numbers after the debate, but they expect that that will put them on more uh, solid footing. Uh, And I think you're right about the general, uh, the ads and and waiting, the wait and see approach. They say we're going to do this. You kind of have to wait and see. Also, he said that he raised $18 million in small dollar donations right after the debate, like in the 24 Four hours after the debate. That's a lot of money, especially when you kind of get your clock cleaned in front of 100 million people. Now, the Trump campaign did put those Trump One banners, those ads, all over the, all the, the news websites. Really, so Yeah. So right under our story and the New York Times story saying Trump gets his ass kicked, there's all these banners saying Trump won. And perhaps if you're a Trump person, you click on that because that's more fun and you find a link to donate money and, and battle back against the corrupt lamestream media. I don't know exactly how it works, but if, if that's anywhere close to true, and we won't be able to verify that until next month when the FEC report comes in, if they raise that money, I mean, I suppose it's believable given his, his success with small dollar donors at this point. Um, but 
I would look at that with also a shade of skepticism, just sort of knowing that they were trying to, in those moments after the debate, do anything to push out a narrative that would sort of undercut this notion that it was, a, a, you know, just a, a clean kill on Clinton's part. And so that was a positive story. They're pushing out the veracity of it. Wait and see. The, the money is actually the most interesting thing right now. I mean, we've seen huge small-dollar donors go, go to Trump. I mean, he's collecting far more money than any Republican in recent history has been able to collect from people who are only donating $200 or less. The question really is how much is Donald Trump getting of that? How much is he paying to raise it? How much of it is the RNC getting? Mm-hmm. Hadass, jump in. Right. And another really interesting thing about this money is not only all those questions that you laid out, it's uh, also, like we talked about before, how much Donald Trump himself will end up giving. He, I, I was noticing a bunch of fundraising emails from the Trump campaign saying Donald's going to match $2 million, all these, all these other things. Another really uh, interesting point that um, our colleagues wrote about was the secret mega donor. Yes. Uh, where there are these mega donors, especially the Ricketts family, who were previously pretty much anti Trump people running anti Trump super PACs, who now are raising money for Trump, but doing so in a secret manner so that they don't have their names attached to him. And I just find that incredibly fascinating because it's like they they just so desperately don't want Hillary Clinton to be president, but at the same time, they don't want to be associated with Donald Trump. And this kind of leads into literally the silent majority that Donald Trump always talks about. But for the Ricketts who funded the Never Trump campaign to be, you know, hedging their bets and, and writing him a check at the late stage, I mean, that was really a reflection of the fact that Leading up to the the couple of weeks leading the, into the pack that was called first our debate. principles pack, right? <laughs> our yeah, thank you, our principles pack, right? Um, they were, I mean, that was a clear reflection of the way that everybody was starting to realize, oh my God, Trump he might win, win. right? And at the end of the day, it's not about principles; it's about preserving power. your line to the powerful. And so, even the Ricketts family said, okay, well, we better cut a check. Adelson put in $5 million, right? That's not a lot of money for Sheldon, but but it's still something. And so you could see that there was a lot of like, you know, the conventional wisdom in the Republican donor world was like, oh my God, this guy might win. We better get on the bus or or, sorry, the Trump train. But whether that holds up now after, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, he could get some big donor help over these last couple months to fund this also. But if he plummets after the debate, you could see them sort of scuttling away. It can be very fickle. You know, it's one of those things that we've we've been told so many times this election that we were about to about to see the big super PAC push uh, on behalf of Trump, about to see his own big ad push. And I think, Kristen, what you mentioned about, yes, he, he is raising more uh, small, small dollar donations than any Republican ever. But there's a question of uh, the ROI, the, re- the return on investment. And his campaign has told our colleague Shane Goldmacher that, like, they're basically investing in everything they can online that will make the money and but there's this question usually like at, at this point in the campaign online fundraising becomes very cheap for the candidates for someone like Barack Obama who spent uh, for his re-election spent five years even leading into his first election spent a year and a half building this massive email list that all they had to do was touch once with an email and then the money would come pouring in. The Trump campaign is still focused on on these display ads that, that Eli mentioned and other uh, aspects that can be very expensive. And so how much of that money they're bringing in that they will be able to spend on a TV ad versus spending on bringing yet more digital well, donations in Well, hold on, because let's talk about how much these things cost. I mean, digital advertising is 
far less expensive than television advertising. And when we got into the 2016 cycle, everyone was talking about how digital advertising was where it was going to be at this year, right? So if he actually does push the majority of that cash toward digital, I mean, we're not going to know the answer to this until well after the election when we're all assessing the results and what made a difference. But that might actually be the smart play. It might be. It also might be the sort of prudent play for the Mercers and the Trump donors who are funding this effort and then getting the money back because where's all the money going for digital into Cambridge Analytica, the (laughs) San Antonio-based company that the Mercers have a huge stake in. So, I mean, let's be real here. Just like he's he's renting office space in Trump Tower and paying back his his you know himself for his use of his plane with campaign dollars, there is there are a lot of people out there who look at, at these FEC reports and see a con really and so the digital ads they may be the best way to reach these people at least his base or if it's targeted you know trump has always been skeptical personally about television ads he hates putting money into tv ads because of the commissions you have to give to the ad buyers he thinks it's a waste of money he said this to anybody who will listen and so he's very susceptible to taking money off TV, putting it into digital, being told that's a smart play. But there are a lot of different motivational factors here as to why they may be doing uh, some of these things. And I think that there are you can target with digital, but they're going to need some TV. Um, it's just a matter of do they have the money to pay for sort of enough saturation. Let's get to our next data point. It is 50 million. That's how many people are expected to tune into the vice presidential debate on Tuesday. That's not quite as much as tuned in on Monday to the presidential debate. Hadass, how are the networks going to approach this one differently? Well, it, it, this debate is just playing out going to be more boring than the Clinton-Trump debates. It's going to be more boring even than our previous vice presidential debates. In 2008, the Sarah Palin-Joe Biden debate actually outrated the first presidential debate between Obama and McCain. This, I mean, if you just look at who's going to be on stage, it's two older white males who are uh, very you know, established politicians, who I'm sure a lot of established people in both parties kind of wish the tickets were flipped and they were the ones on top. And it's going to be, as far as we can understand, a very conventional debate. There's going to be probably a lot of policy talk. And there's not going to be any of these threats of personal attacks that we were talking about for Trump and Clinton. And these are two very experienced politicians who know how to debate. They're, they're very, they're probably very well prepared. And as a result, then we're not seeing any of these like SmackDown Super Bowl style ads running on CNN to set this up as though this is going to be Armageddon. It's going to well, you know what it's going to be. It's going to be normal. It's Yeah, I, exactly. I mean, it's going to be normal. And so there's a lot less people going, a lot less media going. There were about 1,000 people credentialed for the uh, first presidential debate. Uh, I don't have the numbers yet for this next one, but it's going to be far less. Also, it's a lot harder to get to this one. Uh, you know, you have to pretty Virginia. Much- but rural Virginia. Rural Virginia. You can't. It's if, a car ride. <laughs> I know. I'm but just if, saying you're a sell a quarter types. They're like, where? No, thanks. Yeah. Versus we'll Hempstead Vegas where debate. they can, you know, take a. I'm sorry. How did everybody get to Hempstead? Long Island Rail or. Really? You guys all took the train to Long Island? Flew and then took an Uber? See, that's <laughs> what I thought you did. A sell a quarter lady. But. This well, hold on a second. Let, let's let's talk specifically about what they need to accomplish, what they can accomplish. I don't. You know, there have been moments in presidential debate history where the vice president has come back after a poor performance by their running mate to really rescue yeah. the campaign. I, I mean, fully that's expect what Biden Pence, did for Obama. I fully expect Pence to do a very good job, and I 
in, in from what I see from both of them, I know that both of them have been called, you know, pretty good debaters before. Mm. I think that Pence will show for a lot of people kind of the what this Trump campaign can be. And I expect a really great performance out of him. I don't know what you guys think. I think this is going to be the most consequential vice presidential debate in four Ooh, years. I love that answer. Tell me more. In four years, he says. Draw attention to. Let's not miss the, the subtle irony of Mr. Scott Bland here. Come on, Scott. Uh, yeah, look, what you said about vice presidential uh, candidates being called upon to uh, to look good after a little bit of a shaky performance is absolutely, uh, you know, we saw it four years ago with, with Joe Biden after uh, President Obama kind of came out and, and got punched in the nose a little bit in his first debate. Uh, we've seen it in, you know, 1984 when Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. had a pretty shaky first debate and George H.W. Bush had to go out there and uh, really go toe-to-toe with Geraldine Ferraro in a way that he may not have if they hadn't felt like they needed a, a buck up. The the biggest thing that anyone remembers from 1988 is uh, Michael Dukakis yeah. getting uh, that, that question from Bernard Shaw about how he would react if his wife was raped and murdered. But the second biggest thing which he did not react well to. But his second biggest thing uh, was uh, Lloyd Benson smacking down Dan Quayle with that uh, pretty vicious uh, uh, JFK comparison. So these things do matter sometimes. Uh, And like I said, I think this is going to matter more than any vice presidential debate in the last four years. So there have been two vice presidential candidates who have been on the trail for many, many weeks now. And what have they been doing while all of us have been focused on Trump and Hillary Clinton? I don't know. There are allegedly reporters with both Tim Kaine and Mike Pence, but like you never read these stories. And I think that's because nobody cares. They could light themselves on fire and they still probably wouldn't be a lead story on Politico. You need to go buy some roses for Matt and and Burgess now. They've been doing a great job, but I'm just saying nobody cares about these people. And this debate is going to be very similar. These are two boring white dads okay and like when your dad when your dad and your friend's dad start I talking you, politics you know what you do you're like oh and you go upstairs because you don't care okay i care it's i, I just don't oh, think so i mean i think that a gaff a big gaff could have some sort of impact in a moment uh mike pence you know it, mike pence probably will do a very credible job and the people who are watching will see that and say this guy seems very reasonable and he may be able to sell donald trump in a way that Donald Trump can't sell himself. But does that sort of outweigh, you know, like that? I don't think that, I think that's just overshadowed by the mammoth figure of Donald Trump. And, and when we get to the second debate, which is just a few days afterwards, nobody's going to remember too much of right. Mike Pence and Tim Kaine. This- I just... I, d- I don't really. The second see debate it. is what five days after. It's the, on the ninth. It's, it's on Tuesday, Sunday. and then the next debate's oh, on I Sunday. I didn't realize that. Right. That's barely any time. It, yeah, to it's, it's it's not time at all because then at the moment that vice presidential debate is over, we're all going to be focused on it, within a day. It's going to switch to what's the prep for the next debate. I think a, P- Pence is going to spend a lot of his time on cleanup duty as he has this entire campaign, where Kane is probably just going to focus all of it and say. You know, tell us, explain, explain this, explain why you're running. Explain your running mate. Yeah, explain your running mate. It's not going to be so much about, at least for Kane, he might not make it so much about Pence as 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 about Trump. And I'm sure the same will be done the other way around. Yeah. That's why these two were chosen as vice presidential candidates. Because it's not like a Sarah Palin where you have to, you know, defend her lack of knowledge on something and she's a liability. These two are, you know, safe and reliable and they don't make news. They were both chosen because they're boring. I think that's right. And I think that, you know, the the thing is that Kane has to look out for Mike Pence being 
pretty good because he's had several months of practice of explaining Donald Trump and putting a more positive gloss on him. And so, you know, if Kane comes across as like just beating the same drum, if he comes across as one note, Donald Trump's terrible. And, and Mike Pence sits there and goes, well, listen, you know, like here's what he's trying and, and, and explains it, you know, then I think. Kane's I think that's have the to have best point that's else. been made here because I think everybody's underestimating the potential impact of this if Mike Pence delivers that kind of performance. And we saw Kane on stage at the DNC, right? I mean, it's kind of awkward. I mean, like very awkward in terms of trying to be an attack dog. And I can't even remember the refrain. I just remember my like cringing in response to it. Believe um, me. Yeah. Well, when he did his believe me impression. Oh right? yeah, the impression. I mean, it was just it was, it was just weird, right? And maybe that's endearing to like moms. I, I don't know, but um, <laughs> I do. Th there's a difference though between giving a convention speech on primetime TV and doing, you know, and these one-on-one -on -one debates, which he has done in his, his Senate races and governors' races. Yeah, I think it'll probably be pretty lackluster, but we'll tune in anyway. Yeah, I'm gonna just remind myself not to assign you to writing that story because I'm boring with that. <laughs> All right, that's it for us. Goodbye, Charlie. Kristen, it's so good to be here with you again. Thanks for having me. I feel the same way. Hadass, thanks for coming to work today. <laughs> <laughs> it is always a pleasure to be in the same room as all of you fine people. Mm -hmm. Eli, it would be awesome if you went back out on the trail. <laughs> 39 days left. And goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, pod people. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our secret researcher, Zach Montalaro. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.